You're listening to the Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and you're listening to the Tech Talk Show. For the next hour, we'll be talking about all things tech. There's a lovely smell in the studio because we've got some sort of, they look like they're freshly baked mince pies. And I'm joined by my fellow presenter, Sarah Luxford, who is ogling <laughs> the mince pies. I am. I am mm. so looking forward to tucking have, into one of mm, these. I think so too. So Sarah, you're from Tech London Advocates and you're the Women in IT person. Champion. I am indeed. Women in IT. Yes, I am co-founder of Tech London Advocates for Women in Tech. And Women in Tech. We are indeed. Mm. And uh, not to exclude men, by the way, um, that could be misleading. No, we're actually now 2,000 advocates, of which currently around 33% are men. That's good. Very, mm. very good. And we're joined by Navrosa Lada from um, DC... MS. MS, which used to be... Dep- Department of Culture, Media and Sport, but now it's the Department of Digital Culture, Media is. and Sport, which is it good. Is. We'll talk about digital stuff there. And then Al Aftab, sorry, Malhotra from Growth Enabler. Hey. Yeah. Before we start, would you like a mince pie? Absolutely. Yes. Can, I, wanna, can I grab one here? Yeah, they just, just tuck in. Thank so, you. So, um, you know when you buy a mince pie from Marks and Spencer's and they've got this sort of like that horrible <coughs> pastry that's, that's sort of, I don't know, very... Yeah sort of white and it's sort of a little bit porous these are like proper pastry pastry beautifully beautifully are they nice Mm. it's amazing but you know i quite like the white porous do you no Mm -mm. Mm -mm. (laughs) that's what i grew up oh my god that's delicious so that's a good way to start the show um speaking with my mouthful so um starting off with um nervosa so tell us about department of uh, digital culture, media, and sport, DCMS. What's the actual remit of that department? I know it's in the name, haha. But you know, what's the actual remit of the department within within government? Uh, so the remit for the department is that it is responsible for everything to do with culture, media, uh, and sport. Um, and as you said, we have recently uh, changed the name to have a digital element to it. So traditionally, it has been responsible for everything culture related, museums, sport, the traditional. The department um, celebrated its 25 year anniversary this year as a number of armless bodies. So I think traditionally everyone thinks that department, it's to do with museums, it's to do with, you know, um, the Olympics, yeah. um, but it's a lot more than that. So a government department then, um, I think it's the Treasury, isn't it? The Treasury has all the money that comes in from our taxes and all sorts of other places, and then it decides to divvy out that money to the different departments. And then those departments have a remit underneath that about what they're supposed to do and what they're supposed to support. Um, And uh, DCMS, for, for example, then will have money where it supports you know, museums and libraries and the digital agenda and, and all that. So how does how does it get decided how that huge budget gets spent? Uh, so we will have um, a, a, a portion of that financial money allocated mm. to us as part of the spending review. Um, and then when our ministers come in, we work with them to understand what it is that they would like us to do, what are their priorities, Very often we will have manifesto commitments that we have to look at uh, to deliver 
and we ascertain what that is across the department and we are very much led by Secretary of State, her junior ministers, in terms of delivering uh, what we need to deliver for, to achieve the aims of the department. So whoever's got in at the election, who's the ruling party, mm. will have some commitments that they want to do. They'll have some ideas strategically about what they want to do with your department and the yeah. other departments. And then you as a civil servant who's a permanent member of staff... Yeah are there to make those wishes of the, the ruling government come true, in, in essence, so and yeah. help them deliver on what they said they would do to the electorate. Yeah, absolutely. We, we live in a democracy. That's what our role is. It's to advise the government of the day, what, whatever the government of the day looks like. Um, and we're there to help them devise policy options to say, if you want to achieve X, then you can do it this way, this way and this way. And really understand um, th their needs, actually, to understand what best will help them achieve uh, their policy aims. And then presumably they can look at what the finances used to be, you know, what the priorities were there, what money's been spent there. Uh, what's had a really good effect, you know, what's been very yeah. beneficial. So they're not starting from a blank sheet of paper, are they? They're looking at what has happened in the past and what's been successful and what's not. Yeah, so absolutely. We're, as civil servants, when we're drawing up policy options for them, we need to look at the evidence base, you know. We yeah. have to look at what's going to work, what might not work, um, and advise them in the best way possible. And then uh, underneath that, there's, there, there's uh, a number of agencies and public bodies that DCMS will be responsible for and be responsible for funding. Mm. Well, what sort of bodies have you got underneath uh, your department? Uh, so we've there's loads got, of them, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's over uh, 40, you know. Um, so things like, you know, the Arts Council, for example. Um, you know, huge amounts of them. And actually, they are a really important part of what we do. So, for example, if you take DCMS... It's actually quite a small department compared to other huge like delivery department departments. Like Department of Health and, and it, like, Exactly. Yeah. And a lot of our functions are, in effect, delivered through our arm's length bodies, which are arm's length. So that comes with its own um, uh, challenges as well in terms of how you influence that but at the same time they are arm's length and they need to operate within their own little uh, systems as well so there'll be there'll be a body that's, that's sort of um constituting its own rights got its own employees and whatever they're getting money from you mm. as part and, and presumably they have a a sort of plan that they agree with you in order to have that money you don't just shove it over there and they can do what they want there's, there's an agreed plan with Absolutely. targets and yeah, all that no, sort of definitely, stuff. Definitely. and then inside that they might generate their own money as well and have other other types of remits but in essence um, it's a big part of what you do making sure they stick to what they agreed to and they deliver you know as you say their arm's length they they have you know they have their own responsibility of doing it how they want but I would imagine it's quite tight what they're expected to yeah. deliver. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, this is taxpayers' money. We mm. only have a certain amount of money in that pot. And, and yes, they need to operate within that remit. Mm. You finished that bit too soon because I was eating my... Oh, sorry. <laughs> ...mince pie. Um, <laughs> in terms of digital then, digital is a new addition um, to DCMS re relatively. What's the remit there? What, what, what's the department been tasked with doing? Yeah, so, um, I mean, digital is 
uh, as we know, it's such a really important part now of the agenda. Um, it, we, we can't underestimate how important it is. And the department has grown in terms of its digital functions. We are responsible for digital policy at the heart of government. We have a Minister for Digital, Matt Hancock. And within that, there is, we, we used to be called the Digital Economy Unit within DCMS, and now it's um, the Digital and Tech Policy Directorate. And in effect, we have a, a, a remit to make sure that, uh, you know, we are the best country in the world for establishing your digital business here, for growing a digital economy. So we have that remit working very closely with other government departments about how you make sure that it, it is the best place to grow a, a digital economy. That includes talent. So my team is responsible for digital skills policy, working very closely with the Department for Education. So we've really expanded what that means for our department and the name was significant of the fact that half the people within that department have a remit for for digital and and so exactly what does that what does that mean um so you've got you've got a government department you're trying to champion digital yeah are you trying to champion digital uh so that it, it gets <clears throat> recognized in other government departments as part of their policy as well as doing stuff you know out in the public and and, and trying to make things happen and trying to include business is it, is it in government and outside government it's, it's definitely both yeah so um you know we have a role there to make sure that in other departments when they are developing any policies that are related for us we work very closely with mm -hmm. them so building that brand for us that this is the department for digital is is both an internal government facing thing as well as an external facing have a chat with hmrc will you <laughs> <laughs> so um. one of the things that you're talking about this find um uh, really intriguing is the relationship that you th then go out to business Mm. Um, and I've heard recently that you've launched something called the Digital Skills Partnership. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? What, what is it exactly and, and yeah. what is the aims of it? Yeah. So um, when I uh, took on this brief uh, about a year ago, um, talking about civil servants, uh, they tend to uh, have various roles within, within government. So within my 17 years civil service career, I've done a, a various things. But the reason I wanted to do this brief more than anything was because the skills part is really, really important, the digital skills piece. You know, it matters. It matters. I've got a five-year-old. I've got a six-year-old. It matters for them when they are growing up. Um, and I really wanted to understand what we could do in this space. And when you look at the problem, uh, at one end, we have 11.5 million people who lack basic digital skills. At the other end, we know that we are in short supply of specialist skills, particularly around data scientists, cybersecurity experts. We'll probably need about another million of those by 2023. And traditionally, we focused on those two elements at either end, the most excluded, have we need to get them online, get them with basic digital skills, all those specialist skills. But actually, if you look at the scale of the problem, there's a whole chunk of people in the middle who are at risk of, of getting left behind too. And mm -hmm. um, one of the things we were thinking about, and a lot of people were saying to us, is you government, you have a really important role because this problem is huge. It's really big. And um, it is. 
and you can't tackle it on your own. But what you can do is you can get people to tackle it together more collaboratively. So the, the rationale behind the Digital Skills Partnership is lots of really, really great stuff going on out there. Um, people really want to help, whether that's industry, whether that's us. Um, and it's how do you how do you make the sum greater than the parts? How do you bring that together? Mm-hmm. So the partnership is really government convening everyone who wants to really tackle the digital skills gap to say, how can we play smarter? How can we do this better? Um, and one of the aspects around this is local local digital skills partnerships and I do think that's something that we in government haven't looked at on the digital skills agenda enough which is how do you encourage uh, local communities local leaders to determine what their skills gaps are and how they're going to be supported to fill those and is that because it'll be very different say in a rural community to an inner city community to I don't know there might be geographical differences and, and, and therefore top-down government, you can't just mandate what people should do in those communities because yeah. they're all very different. Is that, is, that, is that the thinking behind it? Yeah, I mean, you know, traditionally, of course, it's not a central government's role to come in and be prescriptive. And in fact, we don't want to do that. All we want to do is say, there are some great pockets of practice around the country. And why are some people doing it really well? Why are others not doing it so well? And can we have a role in trying to help others and say, actually, this is what great looks like. And if you do great, then we can come and help and and support you. Um, Some, you know, really interesting research about um, things that work at a more local level, actually for individuals or even for small businesses. If they're looking for help to upskill in terms of their own skills that they need, they're likely to want to come and talk to other people who are like them in their localities. And so I think there's something about that local piece that we've not done before, which I think we should we should be looking at through the, the partnership. I mean, in essence, there's never been such a gap, has there, between young and old, really, Sarah, in terms of... No. Digital skills. I mean, when I look at my mum, oh god, she like so she she. I've got, I managed to get a mobile phone, but it's about a hundred years old because only got seven buttons on it. So because she doesn't want didn't want a camera or anything like that, and that's t- too much. She's managed to, you know, work out. Well, I've been teaching her over quite a period of time to send a text message, but she'll switch the phone on, send a text message, and then switch it off. So now I've told her at least fifty times it'll probably stay on all day. It's fine. But she's, her brain just doesn't work like that. You know, she hasn't been brought up with it. She, she doesn't understand why she possibly would need it. You know, and then on the other hand, you've got people who, are, you know, I don't know, early 20s, who it's just been it's just been piped through their blood system. You know, they, they've just been brought up with it. It's a really difficult thing, isn't it, from one end to the other it's, to, to help people with. It's exactly what we were talking about there. The, the fact that... Um, digital skills are so broad and varied it can be anything from literally a how to use a mobile phone or switch on a computer Mm. versus um utilizing digital to help accelerate your own business versus getting down in the in the um the grains of things looking at coding and creating algorithms and to change the world so i think there's a massive gap there in terms of um, a digital understanding I know Martha Lane Fox has been doing quite a bit uh, about this um, recently. Uh, so I think there's different layers and I think there's different requirements and trying to piece all of this together is 
not an easy job and uh, hopefully the digital skills partnership by uniting local and corporates will be able to bring the best of the best to come together with an action plan mm-hmm. but Navrosa, yeah. how do you how do you get a government minister who may be towards the top end of really not understanding digital you know or, or some mps or whatever who, who who might not be quite that generation how do we get them to understand how important this is because there's no i can't think of any sector at mm. all now that doesn't mm. involve tech of some sort mm. so we shouldn't really call it the tech sector we should just call it as uh, you know the underpinning of nearly everything that we do I think that's absolutely right. I think it does underpin everything that we need for the broader digital economy. I mean, certainly our ministers do understand um, the importance of it. So even if they don't, can't use it, they strategically understand the importance. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and actually, I think our, our ministers are quite good at using it oh, as well. Good. well. That's good to hear. <laughs> um, Jolly good. But, but actually, the, the, the millennials piece is really important because I think there's an assumption that if you've grown up with technology, uh, a lot of this technology is very intuitive to use and therefore you have those skills. And I think what we're finding is that actually isn't quite the case. And those skills around being creators and innovators, it's a slightly different skill from just being someone who can use the technology um so i think we have to do we do have to be careful that we don't assume yeah. that this problem will just sort itself out because we, we were at a conference weren't we the other week and and one of the awful stats was that there are less females for example going into computer science than there were 10 years ago which was really depressing in some respects um and, and i think it's right it's because people think you need to do coding and all sorts of other things whereas technology is so much so much wider than that it is. I think there's a messaging issue around that. Yeah. I think as with all things, it comes down to marketing and making tech accessible. Um, I think uh, if the fear is taken away, then actually I think we'll see some progress. But trying to uh, deliver that message in an impactful way is something I don't think any one company or business or government has really been able to tackle into yet. Uh, but I certainly feel that here in London or in the UK as a whole, we've got uh, one of the most thriving tech mm. industries and uh, powerful brains who can certainly address this problem. So I'm hopeful for the future. Mm. But uh, I think there is a massive gap. And the piece that you were talking there around millennials, there's um, it, there's a big link to education from the perspective of is it a case that we're now having to train our kids how to code or how to learn javascript or xyz versus is it a case of that actually we're teaching them how to be creative or how to be flexible or how to yeah, how to address. think and problem solve exactly mm. which is probably a, a better but it's mm. gonna i mean who knows what the jobs in 10 15 years are going to look like we don't know so if you've got yeah. those types of skills then surely that's a that's a better platform isn't it yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I think the, the, some of the jobs that are being done now weren't being done five years ago. Some of the jobs that will be done in five years' time won't have been created. We don't even know it's what they very, are. <laughs> no, we don't know what they are. But there is something about how you then ensure that there's some agility and resilience in that system. And actually, this making sure that there's a, a love of learning, actually, a love of adapting to, to new mm. situations and new scenarios and really instilling that into our kids, into our workforce, I think will be important. So um, age 
is one thing that you were talking about on, on, on that sort of spectrum. Diversity is really important too, though, isn't it? And I know you're trying to do some work around that for tech. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, diversity, we know that the, that the talent issue is critical. We also know that the pool is really small. And one of the reasons the pool is really small is because there is not enough gender diversity within it. There's a whole section of our society that are missing out on those wage premiums, missing out on those really great jobs. So I think the diversity thing is really important. And, and, and that's, that's race. Sort of, that's race as well. It's, gender, it's race, of yeah. And um, age. Yeah, I mean, I was going to come to that, actually. Um, the pool, um, currently, we, we are focusing our efforts more on gender. And we're supporting the, the tech talent charter, which I think will be a really great way of saying to companies, if you're really serious about improving diversity within your workforce, then we're not going to be prescriptive. But what we're going to really encourage you to do is to look at your recruitment practice, look at your data and look at what you're going to do about it. Um, but it goes beyond gender. Yeah, it goes, you know, socioeconomic diversity, neurodiversity, age, ethnicity. Uh, so one of the things we're looking at within DCMS is how to really go beyond that gender piece and what it is that we could be doing doing to help support that and um uh in in terms of the sort of um the, the skill thing obviously everybody's worried about brexit it's like mm. you know um uh, at the moment if i advertise a job and somebody's a french national they can apply for that job and they don't have to worry too much about it you know that sort mm. of stuff brexit finish you know starts and then it's like mm. well can i employ those people anymore do i have to go through the normal you know immigration system which takes months mm. and months and months becomes a bit more difficult um, there is another solution to that, isn't there? Which, which you're seeing a little bit, and yeah. and maybe we should, maybe we're not thinking about this part of it enough. Yeah. But why don't we train our own staff, you know, to, to in yeah. some of those skills rather than thinking I've got to go and employ a new person? Yeah, I mean, I certainly noticed um, in this role the debate changing slightly with companies saying, okay, um, we're not entirely sure what's going to happen in the future with talent, but it's really important that we start focusing on our own talent. And I do think that is a real opportunity here to help develop our own grown talent. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, if we are short of these skills that we know that we are short of, you know, I'd really like to see employers embrace that and say, okay, how do we give our own workforce those kind of skills that we need? So we don't necessarily need to look outside or not as much and really give them the skills that are going to help them develop and really invest in their workforce. Mm. After, are you seeing that at all? Yeah, I was, you know, one of the things that's uh, playing on my mind is around talent and diversity in particular is uh, the fact that it's it's a problem and an opportunity not just for businesses and for us as a community but um, the the biggest the biggest advantage we can leverage from the millennial generation the digital natives as they're called sometimes is that um, when you expose yourself to new stuff and as you can call it education I guess but education has changed but if you expose yourself to the millennial generation, you hang around with them, you you spend time with them, and you can see how they operate on mobile devices and on phones. Most technology can be learned, but behaviors and the subculture of technology is, an, is what digital really is. So I think there's an opportunity to spend more time with the youngsters, if you want to call them that. And I think Making when you, you sound old, that is. <laughs> well, you know, uh, when you were talking about your mother, of course, and I, I, taught, I taught my mother too, and she's 70 plus. 
But I have to tell you, and I'm not endorsing a brand here, but some brands out there uh, start with an A, um, have built phones and technology that is so easy to use. And I think digital is is it's a vast area. It's not just about coding. It's not just mm. about JavaScript. Heck, I, you know, I've I've got my own technology company. Seven years ago, I couldn't code anything, and I still can't. But I run a tech company. And so you have enough capability out there to learn what digital means in the context of not just tech, but also business models. Right? It's about uh, what it can do, not, not, not what necessarily, yeah. you know, I mean, I always say that um, I can drive a car, which is pretty good, but I have no clue how it works, but I don't need to. As long as I can drive it, as long as I know what it can do for me, then do I need to actually know how it works? No, probably not. Yeah. So yeah. it's the same thing, isn't it? I just want to touch on one more thing, actually, on, on diversity, on the diversity piece. So I just spent um, six weeks traveling across three continents, uh, pitching to venture capitalists. And I started off in the valley, then Bangalore, so Asia, Pak, India, and then London and just came back from New York. And uh, there is a huge opportunity for us uh, in the UK to really re-examine if, if we are going to employ people in the future and drive growth and, 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 and look at talents in a different way. We have to look at the demographics of technology, digital business. Uh, it includes gender, includes race, includes thinking. Um, they're people who have maverick thoughts and viewpoints and perspectives, generally the youngsters and the, and the millennials. That's me as well, though, because I always get myself into trouble. <laughs> and, and, Cor- and corporate gorillas, we used to be described as. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and, that, and I think that continues. And I think we have to embrace the corporate gorillas, right, and that maverick thinking. And I think the, one of the things that's fascinating is that here in the UK, we have so much talent, so much capability the home of innovation for a lot of technology. But when you travel the world, you look at the hunger and the drive at a different scale, at a different level, whether it's the Valley or it's Asia Pac or or it's India. Um, You know, I was at an event and we have, we were demonstrating our products and stuff like that. And when I go out to markets like uh, Asia, then our our stand is flooded. I mean, we've got hundreds of people. What were there? There are a lot of people there, but still the hundreds of young people wanting to learn, wanting to um, be like you, their role models and so on and so forth, um, opportunities there. And when we do the same stuff here, the numbers are much smaller. And I think there's an opportunity to put more and more people, like on this show, we need we need some young people on this show who are building great companies, going out there and saying, you know what, you can do it too. And uh, let me tell you, you can build a company on the back of an Apple Mac. Really, you can. You, and, and a phone. That's about all you need. And right? a phone. Um, you know, and I think I just, you know, without stealing the airtime, air I've spent a lot of time coaching and mentoring print, the Prince's Trust, uh, people from, uh, young people from the Prince's Trust for the last seven years. And most of those young entrepreneurs, and they don't have massive businesses or anything, they're just, they're some, some of them trade on eBay, mm. right? And they make a living. Uh, you just you just need to encourage people. You need to give them the confidence and the belief that you're willing to listen and you're willing to change. A lot of it comes from mindset. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurship comes from mindset, not just skills. Skills come later. First, you've got to make up your mind that you want to do something. There has to be a sense of purpose. So that's a piece that I just wanted mm. to touch on. So now, Rosa, as, as part of DCMS's mm. remit, how do we get all those people to be 
clambering and thinking, God, this is so exciting. I must be there. But I have to say, we see a lot of tech entrepreneurs, mm. entrepreneurs on this program mm. uh, as well, and they are hugely enthusiastic. And it's it's uh, it's the only place they want to be, mm. you know. And 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 it is the new rock star and all that. But but we need to generate a little bit more excitement, perhaps, you know, people in their thirties and forties, possibly. Mm. I think the role models piece is really interesting and and actually really powerful, uh, not just for sort of infusing our future tech entrepreneurs, but, you know, if we want to get more girls studying STEM subjects and getting into these careers, the role model piece is, I don't think we can undervalue that. And I think with, with government, you know, we sort of focus on the policies and what is it that we need to do to change behaviours and how can we support. But actually, it's something beyond that. It is this, how do you inspire and, and actually, is government do, good at doing that? Should we be doing more of that? But it's this inspirational piece and say, and actually celebrating piece about the really great stuff that we have done. And I do wonder whether there's more of a role for us in saying, how do we get that enthusiasm and celebration and inspiration uh, and on top of all the policy stuff mm. that, that we do? And it's not a party political issue. I mean, if, if, no. we, if we take away from MPs shouting at each other in the House of Commons and all that sort of stuff, uh, it, it, this is a common agenda for everyone. Everybody, isn't it? Oh, Nobody's absolutely. going to disagree much about no. the fact that we, we no. need to train our young people, we need to get more women in, we need to get more diversity yeah. in. And we need to celebrate that, actually. But I would say the UK is mm, pretty much nearly the centre of tech, I would say. Not yeah. far off America, actually. London's become quite exciting in terms of tech. Do you think that's fair? Or is it just because I'm born in London and <laughs> went to school in London? But but there is an excitement in London. And yeah. somehow, because we're British, we go, well, we better not say too much about that. We better not shout about I would it. Argue but we need London to shout about is, it. Yeah, well, we should. London, I would argue that London is the tech capital of the world. Um, well done, Sarah. I would quite frankly, well Sarah. Yes. <laughs> uh, quite frankly, in some ways, um, from a diversity perspective, I actually think the UK is far ahead, uh, further ahead than mm. the Silicon Valley. I've had a number of conversations with individuals over there. We did a massive research project going out and interviewing leaders and VCs and coming back here and recognising actually we're not doing so, so bad. Um, look, it's it's a cultural issue, it's a socioeconomic issue. Um, these things take time. And uh, if we face it at the moment, the last 10 years' work, we probably haven't done as good as we could have. Mm. Um, there's still a massive gap to go, but we recognise this. And actually tech can be an enabler to support us in what we need to achieve. Mm. And solve some of our most pressing, um, you know, social issues too. Mm. And not, actually, not, not, not just corporate. Yeah. Social can issues. I just follow up on that? So one of the things around the local digital skills partnership idea is how can we be slightly more innovative and more targeted? So, for example, if locally you understand that you have a specialist skills gap of X, Y, Z, and those jobs are going to pay a premium of X, then how do you get your young local disadvantaged, you know, kids into those kind of roles? And and how are we being smart about it? So again, I think there's a real opportunity there to match those skills in ways that it's like some of this is being done already, but mm. actually encouraging more of that to say, what are you doing for your local communities to get them those kind of jobs mm. that you need? I would love to see an interaction between the larger corporates, SMEs, local councils and mm. local schools and try to bring it together in one big community. Could it not be a committee with 58 people on it? Though? <laughs> because then it doesn't go anywhere. But I think but I think the digital skills partnership is the whole point yeah. of it is to yeah. get collaboration like yeah. that. And actually, you know, people say to me, how long will the digital skills partnership last for? It's 
not a sort of end game. You know, technology moves on so quickly. We will have these challenges all the time. Actually, what we're trying to do is embed a culture of better partnership working because none of us can crack this on our own. So it has to continue. Final word just before I have a little break, because um, I'm very conscious uh, that, that we've been talking to Rosa and she hasn't had taken a bite out of her mince pie yet as we've yes. finished now. <laughs> Shall we just have a little break for a couple of minutes and Fantastic. then we'll come back and we'll speak to Af. Just uh, speak to you later. You've joined us at a very good time. Oh, yeah. Yes. Our savvy software development guys have just qualified for a chunky government cash payout thanks to our new friends from Breakthrough Funding. Yeah. Sorry, that just slipped out. Government handout? No, not a handout, but recognition for our clever thinking. Now it'll be down to you to help us kick it further forward. Leave it to me. Your company could qualify for Innovation Cash too. Find out online now by answering just six qualifying questions at BreakthroughFunding.com. Yeah! So there we go. We're back in the studio and we've got Rosa Larda from uh, Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport. That's DCMS. And we also got Aftab Malhotra, or AF as I'm going to call it, <laughs> uh, from Growth Enabler. But you, you're, you're into all sorts of other things as well. I know. Absolutely. I know. Um, this future of tech in business that, that we've just been talking about, um, there is this one thing where we want, obviously, we want to get more people involved, more diversity more debate actually about how important tech is it's not just for techies it's for everybody um what's your thought on on some of the sort of FTSE 100 and all our biggest biggest businesses how, how do you think they're doing uh, in this area yeah it's um it's a really interesting area simply because uh, that two years ago when i stepped out of the corporate and started to investigate this area i realized that um large corporations out there big businesses uh large enterprises are going through uh, some serious change and most C-level executives are petrified. I'm going to give you some data around this first. What does C-level mean? Uh, C-level corp- uh, so chief something. So the, the people chief. who are right up there the in charge. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. The guys or the girls who are making decisions. Yep. So here's the thing. So I discovered this study a couple of years ago by Yale University and um, This is what got me a little bit worried. So Yale University has been doing a longitudinal study. It's a time series study for a while now. And they've discovered that the S&P 500, so the largest 500 companies on the planet, uh, their life expectancy has declined from what it used to be, which was about 67 years or so, to 15 years today. And they expect that's going to start nosediving even further and probably hit single digits in the next few years. So if we take an example like Kodak, for Uh example, you know, who are right in on the innovations of cameras and then became, you know, somebody who's selling cameras and then the digital age starts coming along. They're trying to adjust. They can't do it quick enough. And and now they're dead. I mean, they're dead as a huge, huge company. Absolutely. And that would have lasted 60, 70 years. You're Plus, saying that, that a, a big corporate like that could nosedive or is, is expected as an average to, to literally not exist after 15 years. Yeah, That's absolutely. Incredible. I mean, it's, 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 it is incredible. I mean, here, here's another example. So Blockbuster. So I remember using Blockbuster. In fact, my wife used to, I used to be their best customer because <laughs> I ended up, paying tons of money on late fees. I don't know if you remember that, and I was pretty bad at that. And I, I discovered that uh, 
recently um, I was reading about Blockbuster. I spoke to some ex-employees. When and I was these are the, the people States. who used to rent out videos. Is that the That's ones? right. Yeah, you know, the, the, the blue and yellow. The blue and yellow. On every high street, practically. Right. Good, a good business, actually. Great, great business. Yeah. Unfortunately, a business that didn't change fast enough. But here's the problem. With a lot of these companies, change means different things uh, at different phases of their growth. And for, you know, for Blockbuster, much like Kodak, their demise actually wasn't a technology or a digital problem. That's what a lot of people think it was. They had invested hugely in, in digital technologies, bought a few companies along the way. Their problem was a customer problem. So they realized, and it, it, it does link back to digital. So I was one of the customers who was making up a large portion of their revenues by paying late fees. And, <laughs> and, and the, what's bizarre is that Blockbuster's near, nearing its death or its uh, dwindling phases, uh, a lot of their revenue was coming from those sorts of sources, which is totally anti-customer. And of course, they were very focused on the digital, sh uh, they were focused on the uh, the outlets, the, the retail outlet, rather than moving to digital. It's very bricks and mortar, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Very bricks and mortar. Um, Woolworths, another uh, sad story. Um, Toys R Us, still around, but not here. It's this, definitely on the deathbed, isn't it? Toys R Us. Yeah. When, you, when you go in to one of their stores, you can smell it almost. <laughs> yeah. No, no, the, the, because the shelves are slightly empty and the staff are a little bit down at heel. But, and, and it's just got that feeling about it that it's, you know, it, it, it's struggling. It's really finding it hard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think the other thing is, you know, this, this is not just the Yale study. I mean, there's a stat out there, and a lot of our research tells us that over 80% of these CEOs in large companies now believe that their industries will be substantially uh, different. They will change over the next five to seven years. That's a, that's a serious, um, uh, you know, stat. Then 67% of a lot of senior executives right now, this is a global stat, believe that the biggest threat to their business is lack of change and, of course, the digital economy. So there is there is a very different sentiment at board level today than there used to be. So, so they're actually, what you're saying is they're actually recognising that now as, 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 as opposed to pretending, you know, like King Canute, that the tide's coming in, but it'll be fine. It'll, I'll, be, I'll be able to set my throne and it'll go around me or something. Yeah, you can't, I guess you can't bury your head in the sand any longer. And I think this relates back to this earlier conversation we were having with Novros around uh, digital talent and the people inside your business. So uh, just a few days ago, I was speaking at a large distribution company, so UK um, FTSE company, and the CEO has just come in to transform mm. the organisation. We've heard that before, right? So the digital transformation of the business transformation. And there are thousands of people who've been in this distribution company. How hard is that job? <laughs> it's it's a tough gig. And, you know, the, the CEO has the best intentions in the world. And, you know, in this case, he was very, he's very focused on growth and future and skills and investing in people. But of course, the, there's another piece to this, which is um, a really, a really dangerous part of change. And the urgent, and this is around urgency, Right. So in the old days, we could take some time, we could upskill and we could run programs and initiatives. The pace of change is is run, is accelerated to a point that it's hard for us to even predict uh, what's going on within our business, let alone outside of our business. So I'll give you an example. There are so we're talking about startups and digital and entrepreneurs and all that good stuff. 
There are 1.78 million technology startups in the world today, 1.78 million, and many of them will fail. 90% end up failing, but uh, that number keeps increasing because of populations like China and India and so on. Now, that's not the concern. The concern is um, over $400 billion has been invested by VCs in the last three years in these startups. $400 billion is a lot of money. You have organizations like SoftBank that have a $100 billion vision fund. They well, have they're a 300-year vision. They're just spread betting, though, surely. Well, you know, if you look at their their 30-year vision, which is underpinned by a 300-year vision that Masayoshi Son, the guy who runs it, has put together, it's truly impressive. And he's investing in the future of humanity. He is not investing in one business model. And that mindset is prevalent. And numerous companies doing it. Amazon is doing it. Bezos is worth $96 billion today. This, these, uh, Amazon's made a profit w- yet, have they? Sorry? I haven't even made a profit yet, have I? <laughs> No, I'm being serious. They, they? They, they do make money. They oh, inject okay. their cash into different lines right. of business. And, you know, it is a profitable company. How they deploy their cash, of course, eats into their, their net margins. Mm. But if, if you look at, um, you know, I think the other thing is that there is this whole shift in the most valuable companies in the world. In the old days, you had ExxonMobil and GE and all of those sort of household names employing hundreds of thousands of people today making things that you could touch and feel products Mm. you know today the the five most valuable technology companies in the world uh, have a a market cap evaluation of 2.2 trillion i mean companies like um companies like amazon are worth over 450 billion i don't even know what that means Uh, (laughs) you know nokia in its prime wasn't that big Mm. blackberry rim uh, was not that, but we're not really used to this stuff. This is this but, is. But, but you're, also, you're also mentioning companies that have almost died as well. So Nokia would be worth this amount of money, which was your point at the beginning. Yeah, you know, and and you know whatever. But now actually, God dear, they're, they're really struggling. Yeah, they are. They're not I at mean, the top of the tree anymore. <laughs> well, they they're hardly there. Uh, yeah. You know, as an organisation, there's been a lot of... My mum's, that's my mum's phone, though, so she's hanging on nicely <laughs> to the nine-button Nokia I, that she's had since 1973. Great phone. <laughs> but I believe that Nokia just brought out their, another handset, have they, which has more battery power and it's old style and some people like it. Yeah, so... Um, but, but, but I'm sorry to interrupt sorry. that, but do you not think that's indicative <laughs> of very old thinking? It's like, OK, well, let's buy another person that's exactly like us who just happened to be slightly better at it rather than looking across the whole piece and saying strategically what's it going to be like in five years time what's you know how are we going to shape up what we're going to do what do we need what skills we need what strategies do we need oh i know we'll buy another handheld company that's slightly (laughs) better than us and i I, and and i'm being very flippant of course but but what you're saying is you've got to look at change because it's coming quickly (laughs) and really look at it across everything yeah, you do. I mean, I, I think the you are right. So Nokia is doing a few mm. few things, but you see, um, there's this there's this uh, the way I describe digital disruption. Uh, it's a little bit of fun. So have you have you watched Game of Thrones by any Jones? Love it. Yeah, great, great <laughs> show. It's a big smile on Sarah's <laughs> face there. So not that I'm talking about Game of Thrones, but but uh, everything is, is is a story of some sort. And there are three characters, you know, in the digital disruption story. And this is important to remember if someone's listening into this this show and podcast. The, the first is... There, there is more than one person, I assure you. I <laughs> find that. <laughs> so um, the first is you have a choice as a business today, right? In fact, even as a government 
department uh, or an individual, you are either number one, a disruptor. A disruptor is someone who's creating stuff, the innovators, uh, game changers, status quo challengers. You can be a Darwin. So you see the change coming, you shape shift and you evolve. General Electric is a really good example, by the way. Albeit quicker and quicker, but... Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you also have Ford Motor Company, a really good example of, of an organisation that is, um, you know, a bit of a Darwin, realising that you've got the Teslas of the world and they're now going into electric vehicles. In fact, they're buying out companies at a, you know, a ridiculous pace. Anything from, you know, uh, ride hailing to curb management, they're going into every space possible. And, you know, the new CEO is very focused on they've that. Just lost, uh, they've just launched their innovation centre at Here East. Have they really? At Olympic wow. Park. Okay. Yeah. So they brought the massive innovation centre to Here East. So if anybody wants to check out their new technology, head down there. And that's near Stratford International. That's near Stratford, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, it's great to hear that because... It, these sorts of companies are employing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people around the world. So when you talk about the future of work and you look at demographics and you look at those who feel they weren't invested in, you know, uh, these companies are really doing a good job of reinvesting in their people and, mm. and redeploying people to do higher value roles as machines, some machines take over from time to time. But anyway, you've got the Darwins and then you've got the final yeah. contingent, the final character in the story, the Dwindlers. And the dwindlers are... What are you looking at me for? <laughs> the it's not an age thing, I'm funny. I'm looking left, I'm looking right. <laughs> so the, the dwindlers are nosediving, right? They, 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 are, they have buried their head in the sand and executives have an excuse for why they shouldn't change. Those organisations will be the casualties of complacency, uh, for sure. And that Yale stat, they will be part of that Yale stat. And but we how, want to stop that. But we what do you do that. with a company, though, if the dwindlers are at the top, uh, which quite often happens uh, in larger companies? You've then got you've got some people who are sort of Darwinian in the middle who might be a bit experienced and understand that you've got to you've got to change. You've got some disruptors in there, which you want to keep you want to keep disruption as long as it's you know sort of focused and 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 constructive. Yeah. So you need those sorts of people underneath you. But but what do you do when those Darwinians and disruptors are inside your company knocking on the door of the dwindlers and they're not getting through. It was this incredibly frustrating. I mean, I've worked for big companies. It's really frustrating. Yeah. It's, and it's, how do we get those dwindlers to, to, to seek help? It's a tough one. And I think there is um, there's a natural selection process here and there's a bit of business evolution. So not everyone will survive, unfortunately. And this is the way life and business goes, really. But I think, you know, Anytime you look at your life, I think a lot of this is about mindset as well. So if you're a senior executive in a company today and you know you've got those disruptors, those Darwins, or you've got the mavericks, the entrepreneurial types in the organization, you have to give them a voice. You have to give them a, a platform. And I think, you know, you can't hide away from the casualties. And it's different now than it was five to seven years ago. And I remember, I remember in my corporate role before I became an entrepreneur and started investing in companies, I used to walk into boardrooms and talk about this stuff and people said, yeah, yeah, whatever. This is all this blue sky stuff. It's never going to happen. Have you seen how much money I have in my bank account uh, as, a, as a company? And I think that's diminishing now. And I think uh, to, your, to your point, what I would say is 
if you want to drive change and you want to be a Darwin, if you're a big organization today, you have to elevate uh, people in your organization who are the mavericks. You really do. And in the in the past, we used to push them away or fire them, right, or get rid of them. Somehow. But but I always I always thought that for me, corporate gorillas, uh, you know, are, uh, are people who are passionate about your business because otherwise they wouldn't care. And actually, what they're trying to do is they're trying to do things differently because they want it to succeed. Right. You know, they're not. They're not doing it just to be, you know, difficult. And, and I think it's it's a way of how do you harness those people who are often quite creative, want to do the right thing, are a little bit vocal. Because if you don't, they just they just go somewhere else. Yeah. And, and and actually, it's good to be challenged. I think I you know I like my staff to challenge me. Um, I want them to because because it's very easy to, to become isolated and, and and lose touch with what's going on. Um, but in your earlier point, you were saying that these chief executives are now beginning to recognise it. So are they becoming you know, like alcoholics as they they actually recognise they're an alcoholic now, which is the first step? Um, I know we're generalising, but 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 are they beginning to realise that that's the position they're in, yeah. rather than ignoring it or pretending? Yeah, I think that there are changes. I have to say, you know, they're good people. They're of not course, bad people. Of they're course, not going out of the of way course. to... Um, and they've built amazing companies. <clears throat> of course they're good people. And certainly you have to respect yeah. um, a lot of these guys for doing what they've done or girls for doing what they've done. I think um, the first piece is if you, if, you, if you walk in the shoes of a senior executive of a FTSE 100 company, um, they all have the best intentions. They do want to change. They accept the unknowns. They accept that they don't know what they don't know and that's why they spend tons of money on external advice and and intelligence and buy stuff like growth enabler and so on but at the end of the day there's you know if you're a listed company you have a lot of pressure your shareholders are saying how dare you i want profit i want profit and i want growth in my stock otherwise there's big there's going to be a shareholder revolt of some sort yeah. right and you're saying well i need to invest otherwise you're not gonna have any <laughs> you're not gonna have any returns on your shares in five years time. absolutely right yeah. and you know capex budgets or capital budgets in these companies have been much smaller than operational budgets, right? There's this concept of like, you run your business, you grow your business, you transform your business. And um, most of that cash has been in, in the run side of your business. So not, not a lot of money's been, been put into growth and, and transformation. To answer your question though, um, are, are these executives changing? Yes, they are. There's one piece that I think some of these executives are doing particularly well, which is around culture. So if you want to change, You've got to accept failure. You've got to embrace experimentation. Fail quickly. Go to the next thing. Right. And don't blame somebody. That you know, the blame culture for me has got to go because if you do want people to innovate, you've got to allow them to innovate and fail. But yes, because that's that's what goes hand in hand with innovation. Yeah. I mean, why do start startups succeed? Uh, if we all built a startup together, and we've got our own businesses, of course. I'm not sure I'd start one with Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> Only joking. No, no, I'm joking. But but yeah, sorry. <laughs> so if we if we build a company together, too clever together, for me. Yeah. <laughs> She's enjoying that. Yeah. So uh, have another mince pie. Yeah. <laughs> so if we build a startup together today, I think the difference is that. All of us together will accept that we are going to experiment. We're going to try different things. And with experimentation, um, you will lose sometimes. And that's why 90% of startups fail. But it takes a lot of guts and takes a lot of courage and tenacity to be able to do it. Mm. So that's a really uh, interesting point here. And it's something that I'm seeing in the industry very much at the moment. And it actually links back to talent and diversity. So there's a saying that your product is only as good as the people who invent it, right? Um, uh, 
startups now, what I'm seeing, particularly with millennial startups coming through, they're really giving thought to diversity and the broader makeup mm. of their teams from the beginning. Whereas you've got the larger corporates who perhaps are now a thousand plus people and it's very hard to then to go back and try and force a new command culture going through. So what are you seeing at the moment in the market generally um, in the mix from uh, being startups actually truly thinking about this new way of being, this new world of work mm. um, and the opportunities and problems that present? That's my first question. And um, the second one is actually around um, what what is it that the CEOs can truly learn from the startups and and what are the trends that you're seeing predominantly um, in the culture of change that seems to be propelling this new era? Yeah. Can I can I yeah. answer the last question first, <laughs> the second part of the question Yeah, first? and you've got three minutes. Okay. Oh, sorry. So really quickly, I, just, and I want to sum up the, the last part of the question by giving you a story around uh, Eric Schmidt at Google. So the story goes, Eric Schmidt, the past CEO of Google, joined Google from another company, was convinced by the, the founders, um, uh, and his first day at work, he was the CEO, right, of this company. First day, walks into a room like this, really small room. He thought it was his office. I walked in, you know, hung his coat or whatever, and went to get a coffee, came back. There was another guy sitting in the room. So he said, hi, um, can I help? He said, yeah, sure, I'm just sitting. You know, it's my I'm, it's space, and I'm, this is my office. He said, well, no, I think it's my office. He said, no, I... I'm, I'm here too. And he was really, Eric was, he was, you know, he was really confused. And he discovered, he went to his executive assistant. He said, who is this guy in my office? She said, I don't know. And he went back in there and he said, so who are you? He said, well, I'm from the analyst team or I'm from the analytics team. He said, so he said, hi, my name's Amit. I'm from the analytics team. She so said, so, okay. And he, and he continued working. He was really confused. He later realized that um, the, the culture of the company and the culture of Google is all about um, expression and experimentation. And there was spare capacity in one of the, the rooms and Amit discovered that there was a room free and it didn't really matter because it was a flat structure. There's no hierarchy. It didn't really matter whose room it was. Don't believe that. And, anyway. and, and the story goes, and they still have that relationship. Amit is now the head of analytics or something at Google. And it, it, it firstly comes down to change and change has to happen in a radical way it doesn't happen in a um for digital to work it doesn't happen in a sort of incremental way that's the one and it's set from the from the top too of always course. always set from the top that's the first part of the question and i think um uh, what i i think what the first part of the question was specifically about you know actually keeping change in mind from the beginning so with new startups actually being able to think about the fact that they need to cater for the change that's coming but it so is easier to do right that talent. from scratch isn't it when, when it's yeah. new it is, and as you'll say your point is if you've got a thousand people how yeah. do you retrofit that blimey it's hard but yeah. i think there is something so just coming back to diversity of thought that yes if you have different people around the table you will get greater creativity innovation and everything else you probably will get more conflict as well you probably might get yes. things going wrong but actually the benefits could be huge and when we talk about diversity it's not because it's it would be nice to do it's because it makes business sense because your profits will be higher fundamentally your policies will be better fundamentally and i think that's how you potentially sell that message and that's a great thing for government to be really pushing for us as well and i think that's yeah. where governments can be can be a real 
you know, force for good if they can keep pushing those messages out that actually, if you look at the stats, mm. you will have more profit if you've got more yeah. women on the board. Mm. You know, that's what you should yeah. be pushing out. You, you, you know, will have better employment practices. You mm. da 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 da. So, mm. you know, that's the really helpful thing that governments can do. I'm really sorry we've come to the end of the program. Anything you just Enjoy quickly that. wanted to say there, Sarah? Have you, you don't want another mince pie? I'd love another mince pie. Are there any left? Yes, there are. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, it, I mean, it's a really good point and it, it's really interesting to see. And I do think, uh, particularly with, with uh, the sort of roles that, that Sarah plays, you are beginning to see a shift as well, aren't you? You, you, you can confirm that, that what Absolutely. I'm saying. Absolutely, no, there's massively. A, um, I think there's there's still an appreciation and, of it now, much more. So, yeah, so the three things that we say to you, the women in tech, are awareness, adoption of actions and advocacy. Uh, the awareness is definitely there. Mm. Um, the adoption of actions is slowly coming. Uh, but finally, we do have a, a set of best practice. Um, and advocacy, it's something that we need to be championing throughout. So I'm I'm hopeful for the future. I'm hopeful. Always hopeful for the future. <laughs> so I'd like to thank our guest today. So that's Nervosa Lada from DCSM. Thank you very much for joining us. And Aftab Malhotra, Growth Enabler. Um, if you want to find out about anything, um, you can always go on our website, uh, which is techtalkshow.co.uk. And uh, you need to find out about the Digital Skills Partnership, definitely worth having a look at, and the Tech Talent Charter. Anything you just... You've only literally got 10 seconds. Anything you want to point us towards uh, some of the work you're doing? Uh, yeah, so uh, websites? growthenabler.com. Growthenabler.com. Go on there. Exactly. You'll find all about AF and the work that he's doing. Um, thank you so much to Sarah Luxford of Tech London Advocates. Thank you for being my co-presenter today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for coming to Pies. Mm -hmm. And if you you want to find out uh, anything else or you want to download our hundreds of podcasts now, go onto our website. Or if you want to contact us via Twitter, um, it's at Tech Talk Show UK. Um, Thanks so much for listening and have a good week. Bye.